Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Prakash Kashwan, editor of Climate Justice in India, published this year by Cambridge University Press. Dr. Kashwan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And yeah, look forward to, uh, to sharing about this exciting book project. Okay, so to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to work on this book? Sure. So um, currently, uh, I'm an associate professor of environmental studies um, at Brandeis uh, University, uh, and it's just brand new uh, for me here at Brandeis. I was at UConn for 11 years uh, until the end of um, the last academic year. Uh, my work focuses on um, environmental and climate justice, um, environmental politics and policy, particularly in the context of international and global uh, environmental and climate governance. Um, And um, almost all of my work is um, quite interdisciplinary. So I was trained partly in political science, partly in uh, policy sciences, and I um, engage very regularly with uh, colleagues and scholars in geography, anthropology, uh, and all of the other kinds of social sciences. I have a deep interest in uh, relating the science part of climate science and environmental science with the questions of justice. And maybe that's the part that we can talk about in the in later in in uh, in the chat. Um, um, yeah, and the, the other sort of in thing that I'd like to share with uh, the listeners is that before coming to academia, I had a first uh, career in international development, uh, and that continues to shape how I um, do my uh, research and scholarship and, and teaching for sure. Um, so that's an important feature of, of all of my work. The book um, happened uh, because of a confluence of two factors. One, I started a new research project on urban climate governance uh, and urban climate justice in India. And as I went around the town talking to different uh, researchers and scholars and experts and, and people on the ground, I realized that India's climate justice narrative was so strongly shaped by this whole 
narrative of international climate justice between the global north and global south that people who were actually looking at the justice question within India, they were not directly working with climate folks in India. And so I thought, ah, there's a major gap here that I need to fill before I can actually do urban climate justice. And so that got me into thinking about bringing together a group of scholars who would contribute insights and fresh insights uh, based on their ongoing research And it was just then that uh, we were hit by COVID crisis. And so I was incredibly lucky to um, have assembled a group of uh, scholars and activists and activist scholars and poets and artists who were all sort of, um, you know, willing and able to contribute uh, voluntary labor to to this this book project. And and that's how it, it kind of took shape. All right. And so you you started to talk a little bit about uh, what my next question is, which is, you know, climate justice is something that's relevant and important for any country in the world. So can you talk about some of the ways that the situation in India specifically is, you know, maybe unique, special, different from other parts of the world, but then also on the other hand, you know, what are some of the ways that the situation in India is comparable to or similar to what we'd find uh, elsewhere in the world? Sure. So, as I said, um, you know, one of the unique features of the Indian context is that the the whole sort of, in a way, the, the movement for international climate justice was sort of, you know, sort of uh, came from India, both on the scholarly side as well as on the, on the um, you know, government negotiation side. So uh, there's a very famous um, book uh, on sort of climate um, uh, colonialism that uh, two uh, uh, environmental um, activists from India, uh, Anil Agarwal and Sunita Narayan, they wrote about this whole notion of differential responsibility for the, um, the stock of accumulated greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And so they came up with this notion of differentiated responsibility and this kind of notion of the atmospheric uh, space and the equity question within uh, atmospheric space. And then within that work, they also uh, came up with this notion of luxury emissions versus subsistence or survival emissions. So, you know, this concept of climate justice actually had... A, a lot stronger grounding in India and in Indian activism uh, compared to what is generally known within the climate justice communities. So that's one part that's important to think about. But the way that concept of differential contribution to atmospheric stock of greenhouse gases got um, um, mainstreamed into international negotiation and leading up to the, uh, the, the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities, which is one of the underlying principles uh, at the United Nations uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, it, it, this, the whole discussion kind of got, I wouldn't say appropriated because all of the actors who are involved in this discussion, they actually liked it and they promoted it and this was important and it's been a massive contribution. But one potentially or probably an unintended consequence of this focus on international justice was that the question of justice within India 
was has not been really uh, taken up in the public domain so much. And in fact, for many, many people within India, both on the activist side as well as on the on the climate scholarship side, the uh, the discussions of climate justice are sort of synonymous with international climate justice. And again, so this is, you know, the all of the uh, claims and arguments about international uh, climate uh, justice are valid. And the the way in which we try to nuance this discussion shouldn't be used as an excuse by the global north, by the industrialized countries to say that, look, you know, why don't you address problems within your countries? You know, I think that's for them to address, but global north still need to be to to be held accountable. So India is unique in in this sense that it has been a leader in advocating for international climate justice, but at the same time, especially the Indian government has completely neglected the question of climate justice within India, and this is precisely where this volume. Uh, seeks to intervene. And uh, the hope is that by eliminating this challenge within India, we can kickstart a broader debate on what climate justice means internationally, but also domestically uh, within each of the countries. And and these could be con- countries in either Global South or Global North. Okay. And then in your your introduction to the book, you you don't mince words in saying that market-based climate policy is a mistake. So why is that? <laughs> right. Thank you for picking up on that. Uh, and I think as I say somewhere, I think I say that in the preface um, about this this time in, in international climate negotiation when, uh, you know, beginning... In 2007, uh, the Bali uh, Conference of Parties uh, meeting, uh, this this idea of market-based instruments in climate change uh, came in very heavily into inter- international negotiations. And it was sort of taking off um, fresh uh, from the success of the uh, sulfur dioxide emission uh, reduction credit uh, markets that were built within the uh, United States. And so, you know, the, the the argument was that, look, this has been so successful in the context of acid rain and, and, you know, reducing sulfur dioxide within U.S., so it has to be successful internationally. And I distinctly remember getting into this, uh, you know, these arguments, both with my environmental economics professor at, uh, at Indiana University, as well as some of the uh, graduates, uh, senior uh, graduates within the program there, and um, it was it was like you know it was uh, extremely uh, clear to me that this was not going to work because you know if you go to the basics of what markets require, you know you for functioning of effective markets you require clearly defined property rights. You require a basic semblance of the enforcement of rule of law, and you require a a reasonable uh, level of uh, information uh, symmetries, which means that all the players in a market 
have reasonable level of information about the product that is being sold and bought. That's how markets work. I'm just going by the economics definition, right? We don't even have to actually get to all of the serious uh, critiques from political ecology and other critical social sciences. Even if we went by the sort of textbook definition of markets, it would be clear that a market in quasi-commodities such as emission reduction credits, right? I mean, you know, to think about that as a commodity uh, is, is, is itself sort of brain-twisting in many, many ways. So it was obvious that this was not going to work uh, to any of us who were actually thinking about the fundamentals. But, you know, this market-based um, climate mitigation um, has such strong advocates who hold enormous amount of political and social capital within global climate negotiations that we actually had to discover it the hard way. And now, you know, uh, last week there was this report uh, where um, uh, researchers here in the U.S. have actually conducted uh, satellite-based data on um, carbon emissions over California and they've actually shown that uh, California um, carbon offset market has not been successful in reducing emissions. Yeah, um, I've been kind of skeptical of those market-based uh, approaches for a while, and it's you know I've, I've been hoping that I would be wrong, and you know it's sounding more and more like I wasn't getting more and more of that data to show that that those kind of interventions don't actually don't accomplish what they're promising to accomplish. Um, right. And I think just to add this one quick point that, you know, um, you know, as we say in the research methodology world that, you know, you have best case and the most difficult case. And so, you know, the reason I cited California carbon offsets program is that if a market-based carbon credits program could succeed anywhere in the world, it would be California, right? You got the all of the conditions that I talked about are, you know, are close to being met in the Californian context, but it didn't work there. And so even forget about even sort of, you know, venturing out to even, even sort of suggest that this might work in the context of international uh, offset emission programs where, you know, you have folks here in the U.S. or, or in Europe, uh, you know, making emissions and then offsetting it by doing things in the global south. And so once you sort of go over the jurisdictions that have dramatically different levels and types of rule of law framework and respect or lack of respect for property rights and all of those conditions, then, you know, you don't even begin to actually define a market, forget about making it successful. So it's actually quite shocking why economists would argue for an international carbon offset market uh, of all the people, you know. Uh, just going by their own sort of fundamental theoretical arguments. Right, right. Okay, so I want to now talk a bit about uh, energy in India because, you know, India's got this big existing coal industry and then there's this emerging solar power sector. And, you know, from sort of a conventional climate policy standpoint, you might think, well, these are, you know, basically opposite ways of producing energy, right? Coal is bad, replace it all with solar and that's good. Um, but from a climate justice standpoint, it's not that simple. And I think your book shows there's some uh, similarities actually in the types of injustice that can result from both coal and solar development. So can you talk about some of the, the pros and cons of 
the way that solar is being developed in India. Right. And and that, so I'll, I'll take that. I think that's a wonderfully framed question, you know, sort of putting coal and, and renewables side by side. Uh, and I think this is, you know, uh, another of sort of interesting features um, uh, from this, this collection that we have two chapters that sort of talk about it. Um, there's, you know, um, the contribution by uh, Vashuda, Dr. Vashuda Chotre, uh, who's a, a senior lecturer at uh, University of East Anglia. And she has studied for many years, she has studied the uh, extractive economies of around coal in central India. And she has made this argument about there being an extractive regime. So it's not just about, you know, um, just pure and simple uh, market-based uh, or even state-driven extraction of uh, coal from these mines and an exploitation of uh, the environment and communities in the process. But uh, Dr. Chotre talks about uh, these extractive regimes. So there, there are these powerful actors in both the state and markets, and they are kind of interlocked with one another in supporting one another. Uh, and so... Her argument is that thinking about just transition in the Indian context has to be based on a careful, nuanced understanding of these extractive regimes, because it is these regimes who are going to drive the conversation and the changes around this whole notion of just transition. And so she's sort of trying to preempt that by making an argument about centering a, a more careful understanding of how this economy is structured and what it means to transition out of this economy in a way that it doesn't come at the cost of the poorest people. And I think a lot of people uh, from, you know, if I understood correctly from a lot of my interactions here in the U.S., I think India actually has, for, for a variety of reasons, not... Um, uh, least of which being the the impressive uh, quote unquote economic growth that we have seen over uh, you know nearly a quarter of a century now uh, has really confused people because within India we have extreme levels of poverty that are comparable to some of the poorest places in Africa and you have uh, these you know what I referred elsewhere as compulsions of marginality when you have people who are so um, you know, compromised by the sheer need to survive and 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 subsist uh, within a given context, that you know many of the inequalities within Indian economy are simply sort of uh, swept under the carpet of the macro narratives that you see in in the global north. And I mean, almost invariably, when I describe the data and the actual kinds of uh, the realities of inequalities in India, there's almost like an incredulous, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, a lack of uh, belief in in things that things could be that bad, and it is it things are really that bad, and so coal economy actually rides on this massive poverty, and you know, in the introduction chapter, I describe these fires, the underground fires that have been burning for you know, as long as we've been an independent country, and in fact, even from before then, and people have been living in those areas, you know, and some people who were displaced, they've been worse off going to new places where it's not supposed to be burning underground, but they still want to actually come back to 
the the places that they've been quote unquote rescued from. So anyway, uh, you know, long answer short, the the main point that uh, Dr. Chotra is making is that it's it's not about just about moving from coal to renewable and taking care of some labor issues as the as the uh, discussion is framed in the global north context but because of this combination of the regime of powerful actors and the extreme poverty and compulsions of of unemployment and lack of alternatives and all of that it's a much more sort of wicked you know if we could use that phrase uh, from wicked policy problem it's a much wicked problem and we'll need much more broad based discussions uh, for us to even begin to design uh, some very effective just transition uh, frameworks in the context of coal uh, in India. Um, and that's, you know, that's interesting. And actually, Dr. Chautre makes this argument towards the end of the chapter that, um, you know, um, the, the, the actors who are powerful in the coal economy are already actually beginning to take control of the renewable energy sector. So that's interesting, and I'll let the readers read more about that. Um, but um, the chapter that we have on the the solar energy transition in India, and they're focusing mainly on the power sector reforms and the sort of the policy architecture that seem to be building around uh, the, the transition to renewable-based grid systems. And so they are arguing that while renewable energy is often thought as being almost like synonymous with decentralized power and small-scale grid development. The Indian mindset of the bureaucracy and the leadership is such that they are in the process of building this gigantic, centralized, massive grid structure that will essentially replace the ongoing current uh, coal-based and other uh, you know, fossil fuel-based uh, grid system that is massive and centralized, uh, at, at least in the production sense. Uh, and so they're kind of replacing one centralized system with another centralized system, and that can never be just in any meaningful sense because India is so big and so vast with all of the diversity of uh, you know, regional differences of development, economy, social context, geographical context, that we have to think uh, in a more decentralized way if we are serious about, uh, you know, making this into a just transition. But that doesn't seem to be on the horizon uh, so far. Okay. And then I wanted to ask you about some of the forms of inequality within India that uh, affect climate justice. And so if we could start with caste-based uh, discrimination. So how does caste play into climate justice or injustice right so and again i am mentioning uh, the contributors because you know um it's you know they they should also um you know it's their work um of course i i played a role in in sort of steering and and curating uh the work so the the chapter on caste um uh proper you know there's there's one chapter that is devoted exclusively to caste uh, which is by uh, Srilata uh, Sirkar from King's College um, in, in London. And then there are um, three or four other chapters that, you know, bring in caste in, in various ways. And so I'll quickly sort of uh, mention them without mentioning the individual chapters, but I'll mention the issues here. Um, I 
cast, as as I hope most of the uh, listeners would know, um, is a a fundamental feature of Indian society, uh, and and sometimes you know. Uh, there's there's a tendency to sort of talk about caste in the past tense as if this used to be a bad reality of India and we are getting out of it. On the contrary, we have actually, um, are in many ways, the, the ongoing political environment has actually strengthened and particularly in the context of the rise of the right-wing populism, they actually ride on uh, caste divisions and caste identities and there's this whole thing called social engineering you know, this is a phrase that you will hear in Indian news telecast around the election times. And this is almost taken as like, you know, as something that is, uh, you know, if not good, it's like, you know, it's, it's part of the reality. And so elections are fought along the caste lines and candidates are chosen and electoral strategies are designed along the caste line uh, in almost all of the uh, elections in India. So it's, it's a deep... Um, reality of the Indian social, political, and economic structure, as well as the legal structure. So some people may not realize that even the uh, the judiciary, I mean, the inner workings of judiciary are sometimes organized around the caste lines so that, you know, pe- judges and lawyers and, you know, other people in the legal fraternity, they are sort of connected to one another through these caste networks and, you know, and, and, and you can imagine the rest, right? Um, with with notable exception of, you know, uh, social activists and civil rights advocates and human rights advocates who've been, who've been fighting uh, these battles. So, so one, I wanted to sort of emphasize without being able to explain the details of how the caste system worked because that would take another podcast, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, without having to do that, I just want to really emphasize that it's something... It's, it's the blood that runs uh, in, uh, inside the body of Indian politic uh, and polity uh, writ large and political economy writ large. So in the context of climate change, um, the, there, is, there is in most places, uh, both in urban and rural areas, there's segregation, residential segregation along caste lines. And so you can imagine the areas where the so-called lower caste people um, live uh, and work. These are the areas that have poor infrastructure, uh, you know, oftentimes very little sort of stormwater uh, management. Uh, these, uh, you know, their, their neighborhoods are constantly flooded. Uh, you know, access to safe drinking water is, is, is problematic and non-existent in some places. They have to sometimes, especially in rural areas, women have to travel miles to get their daily supply of drinking water. So, you know, in many cases, they are carrying every ounce of drinking water supply on their head in these sort of pitchers, Um, you know, uh, these big uh, utensils. And it's it's mostly women, uh, almost all the time, the women who have to do this. And so any kind of stress on the uh, on water on urban systems on um, heat waves uh, um, i'm sure um, listeners have have uh, uh, heard about the reports that the world bank has come out with in terms of how serious the impacts of the heat waves are going to be 
on the outlaw, outdoor wage labor and all all of that outlaw, outdoors uh, wage labor is done by the so-called lower caste people because they are forced because of both historical and contemporary reasons they're forced to work in the lowest paying jobs which is in the constructions almost all of india's uh, municipal um, staff who's responsible for cleaning of the sewers and maintenance of the very primitively built uh, drainage systems in the indian society uh, they're all sometimes even by uh, by formal i mean there are places where it's actually on the paper like black and white that we are going to recruit uh, more cleaners from these particular low, so-called lower caste people, but practically, literally, all of the India's municipal workforce is uh, is made of uh, members of the lower caste communities, and uh, in in any kinds of post-disaster scenarios, um, there these municipal workers who are on temporary government payroll. In some cases, they are permanent, but mostly they are on temporary precarious kind of employment conditions. They are forced to clean up after the disaster with their bare hands, without as much as gloves or boots uh, to use when you have, you know, sometimes you have bodies and, of course, uh, a large number of animal um, carcasses and, you know, bodies uh, floating in the floods. And there were horrible reports after the floods in 2015 in Chennai, uh, and then you know, in every major flood that that um, you know we can uh, we can remember. So this is to say that if you think about one section of Indian society that is taking on you know, and I'll just you know make up some percentage here, but taking on let's say. 65% of the injustices of climate that are foisted on Indian society, uh, those would be the, the lowest caste people. And then you have the, the indigenous people, uh, Adivasis, who are often considered to be outside of the caste system, but even below or at par with these so-called lower caste and so-called uh, untouchables or former untouchables, the you know practices of untouchability still continue. And so um, then you have the indigenous people and their resources are subjected to land grab and green grab and mineral grab. And uh, these people have been indigenous people. The Adivasis in India have been displaced multiple times in many places. Uh, whenever they are displaced, they are supposed to fend for themselves. They're not given uh, legal titles to the land that they are quote unquote moved to these new lands by government agencies and some new project will come up and will displace them again. So, and, and, you know, I'm kind of describing these nuts and bolts and, and, you know, some of these things are not even in, in the book actually. So uh, the caste chapter offers a more sort of deep dive into the, the history of urban development in India and how it shapes the way we deal with urban climate uh, governance and urban climate justice issues. Um, but, all of these other factors that I talk about, the displacement, the, the cleaning of the sewers and the, uh, the post-disaster cleanup and, you know, without any facilities of, of you know, um, equipment or any kind of even the basic, uh, you know, um, um, tools that you need to do any kind of cleaning uh, is to say that, um, 
Yeah, it's it's actually difficult to talk about. Um, and I wanted to sort of paint a little bit of a graphic picture because, you know, I think most people uh, here in the U.S. and elsewhere in, in the industrially advanced countries, uh, they'll, they, you know, unless you study this stuff, you know, like many of us do, uh, they really don't know, you know, what, what is it that caste means in, in the Indian context. So I, I think I did uh, go off on a bit of a tangent, but I, I hope it was helpful to sort of contextualize the whole thing. No, that was great. Um, and in the process there, right, of course, all these things are intersectional. So you mentioned uh, gender as part of your discussion of caste there, but I was hoping you could say a little more about gender and climate justice and kind of what your book adds to the conversation on that topic. Right. Um, so I already mentioned the, the, the question of, you know, simple sourcing of drinking water, right? And um, um, there are um, active physical barriers in the sense that in, in, in many places like the state of Gujarat that, um, you know, India's prime minister uh, was leading many years b before he became the prime minister and is supposed to be one of the growth stories in the country. Um, there are places where uh, Dalits, the so-called lower caste people, are not allowed to um, uh, get water from particular wells because these wells are off-bound. They, they cannot... The, these Dalits cannot touch the water um, because the water get you know if Dalit touches the well, the the whole water gets polluted. That's the idea, uh, you know. And so there are actual physical and social barriers to simple access to clean and safe drinking water uh, in many many places, and because. Women uh, within Dalit households, women have the responsibility to procure water in many cases. And this is, you know, almost like a trigger warning here. But, you know, one wouldn't imagine that, um, you know, this difficult uh, journey of having to secure drinking water supply every day for your household would then lead to, um, you know, harassment, physical harassment in some many cases sexual exploitation just to get water women are forced to go through indignities and kind of experiences that you wouldn't actually imagine so there's a constant thread of 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 um uh, violation of uh, bodily dignity of of dalit women young dalit girls um you know who need to uh, fetch uh, their supply of, of uh, drinking water for their household. Um, then there are questions um, a, of r related to, so uh, one of the uh, chapters that I co-authored with uh, a young um, um, academic uh, and journalist, Vaishnavi uh, 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 Behel, uh, we um, talk about this North Indian state, Uttaranchal, where there are supposed to be many uh, of these um, natural springs uh, and and you know these springs have been maintained through 
traditions and local cultures and community-based initiatives. So they, these are the springs and sources of drinking water that are often celebrated in the scholarship on, on climate adaptation and climate resilience. But because these springs exist within this particular social context that is divided and, uh, you know, uh, subjected to the violence of gender and caste and the intersection of two, there are there are prohibitions around menstruating women uh, not being allowed to, uh, you, you know, uh, again, touch uh, the source of the water. And there are other sources of water where women bathe and, and you know, wash clothes. And again, you know, precisely during the days when they would need uh, to have access to, uh, you know, bathing and washing, they are actually prohibited from uh, availing of, of that access to waters uh, because, you know, because of social taboos around uh, menstruation. Uh, in, in some places, um, we've had reports of, um, you know, uh, girl students not being able to go to school um, because of menstruation and, and the taboos around that. So the intersection of, of gender and caste uh, presents almost insurmountable, uh, you know, and insurmountable given the social context that we have. And what is interesting um, about uh, this North Indian uh, context uh, of, of climate adaptation and climate resilience through these traditional water sources is that there have been projects by World Bank. Uh, and, and some of this research has been done by scholars such as Deepa Joshi, whose work we actually draw on. And, and she uh, shows how um, the, the, these projects by multilateral agencies and NGOs who are supposed to be progressive are also subjected to the same sort of social grammar and same sort of social uh, matrices of exclusions and, and inclusions. And so, uh, you know, intersectionality appears uh, in, in very, very complicated ways. Uh, but there is also hope, uh, you know, I mean, we uh, have a remarkable chapter on um, agroecology, um, uh, the promotion of agroecology in, in, in two different South Indian states, Kerala and Tamil Nadu, where the state governments have come up with policies to allow uh, women farmers access to land through land leasing programs and then support these women uh, collective farmers uh, and farm operations through state-supported programs on agroecology promotion. And so, uh, and, and, and um, uh, Ashlesha Kardse and Kavita Srinivasan, who are uh, two uh, young uh, scholars and scholars activists, uh, they are, both of them are agroecology activists, and they show how intersectional agroecological justice actually uh, shows such a big promise in the Indian context where we still have a large population that that relies on farming and agriculture of different sorts. And women's land rights have historically been uh, not recognized properly. Uh, but, you know, through the work of many advocates, including scholars such as Abhin Agarwal, a uh, globally celebrated economist who has de devoted enormous amount of effort and time to sort of research and document and to advocate for women's land rights, I think we have had some progress over the past couple of decades. And, and this is one big area that any multilateral agencies or even scholars who are thinking about researching on questions of 
um, climate justice and, and particularly in the context of gender justice, uh, this can be a real big focus in India and many other global society, global South countries with similar kind of socioeconomic and agricultural uh, sort of profile of their economies. Okay, so I've gotten to ask you a whole bunch about the kind of traditional scholarship pieces of the book, but I also wanted to highlight that the book also includes some poetry and some visual art along with the, you know, typical scholarly chapters. So could you talk a little bit about first why you uh, included those pieces, you know, how you went about uh, soliciting them from the book, and then also maybe, you know, pick one or two of your favorites to tell us a little more about. Right. So the inclusion of, of um, poems and artwork was actually inspired by another collective project that I'm involved in um, that is in collaboration with uh, my longtime collaborators and, and, and friends and colleagues, uh, uh, Gustavo Garcia Lopez um, uh, and, uh, and my uh, former uh, professor from Indiana University, uh, Lauren Morris McLean. We are involved, we are currently almost finalizing uh, another edited volume on um, uh, climate justice in the city. So that's specifically focused on that urban climate justice agenda that I mentioned previously. And uh, and that's a globally focused, you know, both global north and global south. So in that community, uh, there was a lot of discussion about the importance of art and poetry. Uh, and so I got inspired by that discussion and sort of, you know, took that uh, idea very seriously and implemented uh, in this volume, but it actually, you know, completely uh, credit to that group and that community uh, that, that you know, for all those inspiring discussions. Um, and I, there are two things that, you know, made me seriously invest uh, a lot of time in, in soliciting and, you know, especially the poetry and the translation was way more challenging than I had first anticipated, but it was also a lot of fun. Um, one is, I think, there's an increasing uh, acknowledgement among scholars um, who, and especially, you know, academics in Global North, and particularly those people who are in the, you know, tenure system and who think of themselves as research-heavy, scholar heavy, scholarship-heavy uh, academics and so forth, that our scholarship is so dense and, and convoluted and sort of, you know, uh, inaccessible to a vast majority of people who fund our research through public funding and all that, right? And so I think there's this um, realization and a lot of debates and discussions on Twitter and on at conferences, uh, which I think uh, has been instrumental in shaping, uh, you know, my uh, sort of resolve um, that, you know, all of our scholarship, however deep we want to make it, you know, in an academic theoretical sense, it has to be written in an accessible way and it had to be presented in a way that is accessible to the broader audience. And we have, you know, attempted this. It's not always easy. It's always a work in progress. Uh, you know, all of us need to learn to do that kind of writing, which is dramatically different from scholarly writing. So that whole agenda of, you know, simplifying and making uh, scholarship accessible was um, was um, sort of you know instrumental in in motivating me to do that. And if you don't mind, I would actually um, probably talk about 
real quick about three different pieces and just that's sure. to illustrate the the second argument that i make about why it is important so you know see how when i was talking with the cast um, I had to go through this long-winded discussion and giving you several examples of how deeply pervasive the reality of caste in Indian uh, society is, right? And so some of those things can never be adequately captured in scholarly pieces, uh, partly because of the vastness and the interconnectedness of these, all of these different topics and the, and the sheer compulsion of keeping any volume in a manageable shape and all of that, right? But sometimes a, a poem can actually capture uh, a lot of that stuff in just a, a few sort of, you know, paragraphs. So just to give you two quick examples, uh, there's, there's a poem by uh, uh, Pranita uh, Modiliar, who's a, who's a scholar of, of, of environmental policy and, and, uh, and, climate, uh, and climate justice here in the U.S. Um, uh, and moving now to Toronto. Um, and she uh, wrote this um, absolutely amazing, uh, amazing poem while she was doing her field work. Uh, where she talks about how caste appears, anyone who does fieldwork actually has to deal with the caste because, as I said, it's everywhere. You cannot escape the reality of caste uh, no matter what you're doing. So she talks about talking to, uh, you know, interviewing these people during her field research, and one of her interviewer interviewees um, actually talks about a friend that, um, they want a friend's house that they want to go to and then sort of describes in this poem how their houses are different. So, you know, in uh, you have one house, uh, the thatched house that has two rooms, a kitchen and a room of everything else. A kitchen and a room of everything else. The house is dark even in the daytime. Gaps in the thatched roof send sharp streaks of light cutting the air like a knife. So, you know, sort of describing what the house of a, a, a lower, so-called low-cost household may look like. And then this interviewee 10 takes me to the house of his best friend, and that house has seven rooms and courtyard with op- that is open to sky, awash with sunlight, and, and, and on and on, right? And I thought this was, you know, I mean, this is really powerful, both in terms of um, sort of, you know, bringing to life a reality that uh, all of us have dealt with. But, you know, if you look at the scholarship on environmental uh, questions and climate questions in India and most of the other kind of social science uh, questions, caste has really been invisibilized. And we have colleagues now who are valiantly fighting um, about, you know, questions of uh, caste discrimination and and the ugly uh, ways in which caste realities shape the academic institutions. And in particular, I would like to mention uh, a professor at Indian Institute of Bangalore, Deepak Mulgan, who's been collecting data, analyzing the faculty representation, lack of representation among PhD scholars and so forth. Um, so, you know, I, I really liked uh, Praneta sort of bringing this, this reality out. Uh, and then we have a poem by uh, an in, in Adivasi indigenous uh, activist and poet, um, Waharu Sonawane. And he his poem is actually addressing a social movement, a very renowned social movement that 
all of us who have worked in the social sciences on the questions of social justice, we owe a great uh, amount of debt to the social movement. And I'm talking about the Narmada Bachao Andolan uh, Save Narmada uh, campaign that many in the global community actually know about. But the functioning of the movement for a variety of very complicated reasons that I actually document in one of the chapters in this book, uh, that functioning of the movement was controlled almost entirely. The leadership was controlled almost entirely by middle class outsiders who weren't actually rooted in the uh, the context that they were supposedly fighting for. So uh, uh, Adivasi uh, activist and leader uh, Waharu and poet Waharu Sonwane uh, talks about um, this this gap between the leadership and the followership in the movement. And he says, we didn't go to the stage, nor were we called. With a wave of the hand, we were shown our place. There we sat and were congratulated. And they, standing on the stage, kept on telling us of our sorrows. Our sorrows remained ours. They never became theirs. And, and, you know, every time I read this poem, uh, yeah, I, you know, it sort of makes me very emotional. Uh, and I, I had the fantastic opportunity to actually talk to Waru um, Sonwane, uh, and he's such um, a delightfully insightful um, um, activist and, and visionary. Um, uh, and so anyway, so that was one of the perks of, of being able to do that, uh, you know, to have an opportunity to talk to the to the poets and, 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 and the artists and so forth. All right. So uh, I think we've taken up quite a bit of your time. So to move into our, our closing questions uh, first. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were working on this book. Right. Um, absolutely. Um, so, um, I mean, of course, you know, it can be a very long uh, list, so I won't go through all the names, but in particular, in addition to um, uh, the editors at Cambridge University Press, um, Anvesha Rana uh, and, and Kutsi Ahmed, who were extremely supportive through this long-winded um, process, you know, got interrupted because of COVID. Um, you know, all the, and I, I've been saying this uh, on, on some public venues, that, you know, in academia, most of the edited volumes are often uh, a product of some conference or some project that people are doing and they come together as part of a panel or something. Uh, and this volume didn't, uh, you know, uh, have its origin in any of that. There was no funding. Uh, I uh, was lucky to have fellowships uh, through the Human Rights Institute at the University of Connecticut so that I was able to devote my time. But uh, the contributors, the poets, um, uh, the artists, uh, they work um, pro bono and, and on their time and through, and some of them actually had to drop out because they were suck, you know, they needed to work on the COVID crisis. Uh, we had plans for a chapter on uh, migration and the activist uh, professionals who were working on that chapter, they had to devote themselves to addressing the massive 
uh, out migration crisis that occurred because of COVID. So we we didn't have that chapter. So I'm I'm in in incredibly grateful to all of the contributors who who were able to pull this off uh, in the middle of such a such trying times. Uh, and and lastly, um, we have uh, made the book. Um, open access, and this is thanks to the support of the India uh, Climate Collaborative, uh, which is a fantastic institution that is supporting many, many innovative uh, interventions in the Indian climate space. Uh, and India Climate Collaborative uh, is being supported uh, in turn by uh, Adele Give Foundation and the Friends of Adele Give Foundation, Give Foundation in the U.S who, you know, supported, uh, you know, uh, actually sort of paid for making this this volume open access. So I'm incredibly uh, thankful to both the India uh, Climate Collaborative uh, as well as the uh, Adele uh, Give Foundation as well. All right, yeah, and open access. So listeners, you have no excuse not to go read it. Um, so uh, as our final question, uh, we always like to ask, what are you working on next? Right. So, so as I mentioned, I'm working on another um, uh, collaborative project, uh, Climate Justice in the City, and we are just about uh, finished um, the, um, you know, the curating and the collection of the chapters. Uh, and, and hopefully um, it will come out uh, towards the end of the next year or the year after. Uh, but my main solo project right now is um, on... Uh, a, a project that is tentatively titled as Governing for Justice, uh, and that focuses on uh, environmental and climate justice governance here in the U.S. And this has been a work uh, in progress for the last four years or so, and again, uh, got interrupted because of COVID um, quite a bit, but I'm making very serious headways now, and so hopefully in a couple of years, uh, that uh, book project, which is um, on an advanced uh, contract with Oxford University Press. Uh, hopefully that will be uh, out too. And the main argument I make there is uh, to, uh, to sort of focus more carefully on um, the policy process and policy design uh, to ensure that um, we actually address the injustices, environmental injustice and climate uh, injustices. Uh, because a lot of there's a kind of a division of labor between com, between scholars who focus on an analysis of climate justice and climate injustices versus people who work on policy and policy is supposed you know it has been mainly a positivist sort of sometimes a bit reductive kind of field uh, and so I'm bringing my training uh, in, in in the policy um, sciences and policy process side of things. Uh, to bridge along with a lot of my recent work on uh, environmental and climate justice. So I'm a bit nervous, but quite excited about this this new project as well. Yeah, it sounds great. And hopefully we can have you back on the podcast sometime to talk about it. Absolutely. It'll be, it'll be a great uh, pleasure and privilege. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Stanton. Thanks a lot. Uh, and uh, yeah, we look forward to uh, connect uh, with with any of your listeners. Um, I would really welcome them reaching out to me or any of the contributors uh, to talk about these, these questions that we bring about in this volume. All right. 
So this has been a conversation with Prakash Kashwan, editor of Climate Justice in India, published this year by Cambridge University Press.